invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. This evening, we will be hearing God's Word from Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. But before we hear God's Word to us, let us call upon Him once again in prayer. Merciful Father, we long to know you, to know you as you are. Not to worship a God of our imagination, but to worship the one true God. So I ask in the name of Jesus that once again as we hear your word, that your Holy Spirit would work among us to open the eyes of our hearts, that we may truly see you, that we may have greater faith in who you are as our God, and that we would be able to clearly tell others about you and what you have done for us in Christ. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Throughout chapters 3 through 16, which is the main meat of the book of Judges, the author is going to now tell us about 12 different deliverers. That number is not incidental since there were 12 tribes of Israel and each of these deliverers comes from a different tribe. So the author has clearly chosen carefully who to include in this lift, list of deliverers during this period. The deliverers from the 12 tribes communicates that the problems faced during this period of Israel's history encompassed all of Israel, even though not every story will include every tribe. So what we'll see is that the whole nation was descending in increasing canonization and moral degradation. Furthermore, even though there are 12 deliverers mentioned, there are only seven cycles of oppression and deliverance, if you include Shamgar. By that I mean that when you read about Tola, Jer, Ibzin, Elon, and Abdon, there's, there's nothing mentioned about a people oppressing them and how these judges delivered them. Even with Shamgar, however, we know that the Philistines were oppressing Israel and he delivers them by killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. 
So why is the number seven significant? Well, this is significant because it draws your attention to the fact that the oppression Israel is facing, as I've argued before, was a covenant curse for Israel's disobedience. Because when you read in Leviticus 26 about the curses for covenant disobedience, four times the number seven is used. For example, God says if Israel disobeys, one of the consequences will be oppression from enemies. And in Leviticus 26, 18, God warns, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold or seven times for your sins. And he reiterates this in verses 21, 24, and 28. So even though there were most likely more than seven times that Israel was afflicted and delivered, by including seven of these cycles, the author is teaching us that God kept his word to discipline Israel sevenfold. That he met out his full promised discipline for disobedience. Now I could go on with... Other interesting and important notes about the content and arrangement of these chapters. But I mention these to remind you that Judges is not just a historical book. It is a theological book. It's not arranged just purely chronologically. It's arranged theologically. I also at times like to point out details like this to you that you may have greater confidence in the word of God. And that is, you meet people who say, oh, no, I don't believe the Bible. And they throw out their one or two objections. You can stand confident of, you, you really haven't read this very carefully. These are not just random books that are just throwing out random facts. They are so carefully organized and written that the more you study, the more you realize this is the word of God. Every detail is intentional. As I said in my opening sermon, therefore, Judges is history that has been arranged and recounted to preach theological truth to God's people. And this is important to understand when we come to the story of the first deliverer, Othniel. Because the story of Othniel does not appear to get these cycles of Judges off to a very exciting start. The story of the next deliverer, Ehud, is far more detailed and interesting. So why doesn't the author tell us very much about Othniel? Why does he just give us a skeleton version of the narrative? Well, I believe he does so for two reasons. First, because the main purpose of including Othniel's story is not found in the details of how he delivered Israel. It's found in the pattern of deliverance. So in the last section that we considered last week, the author gave us a general theological grid to help us understand the narrative as it moves forward. We saw that the generation after Joshua did not know the Lord, so they abandoned God to serve other gods. God gets angry, so he raises up enemies to oppress them. The people are greatly distressed. God is merciful. He raises up deliverers to save them, but they won't listen, so they descend into further stubborn sinfulness. 
the deliverer dies, then it starts all over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. So we've been given that general rule. Well, the story of Othniel provides now a, a concrete ex historical example of this pattern. It's like when you learn a, a new board or card game. I enjoy board games and card games. My wife doesn't, so we don't play many. But whenever I get the chance and I'm learning a new one, what's the first step? Well, you read the rules for the game so you know how to play. That's like chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. It gives you the general rules for understanding judges. But then what do you do? Usually you do a practice round to make sure everyone knows how to actually apply the rules in practice. The story of Othniel's kind of like that practice round. So since the point is to understand the pattern, the details are left out to avoid distraction. While not every cycle includes every part of the structure we see in Othniel's story, the, the pattern generally follows this formula. First, we'll always read that Israel does what is evil in God's sight and serves other gods. You see that in verse 7. Second, we'll see that God will give the Israelites into the hands of a specific enemy. You see that in verse 8. Third, Israel will cry out in distress. You see in verse 9. Fourth, God will provide a deliverer, which you also see in verse 9. Fifth, God will give the enemy into the hands of the deliverer, which you see in verse 10. Sixth, the land will have rest or peace for a specific period of time, verse 11. And seventh, the deliverer will die, which you also see in verse 11. That is the pattern of oppression and salvation that will be repeatedly used. And that's what the author wants you to get from Othniel. But the second reason I believe Othniel's story is presented in skeleton form is that it helps us in this way more clearly see God's activity. It can get easy to, to get caught up in all of the exciting and somewhat confusing, confusing details of Gideon or Jephthah or Samson. More often than not, when people come to me with questions about judges, it's, well, did, did Jephthah really sacrifice his, his daughter? What was Samson doing here? It, it's questions about all of these details, which are important, but we can easily start paying attention to the man more than the God who raised up the man. So the skeleton version of Othniel's story protects you from focusing too much on Othniel and helping you see at the very beginning that in all of the stories we're going to read about, God is the major player. God gives Israel over to the enemy. God raises up the deliverer. God places his spirit upon him. God gives the victory. So as you'll hopefully see by the end of this sermon, the pattern or outline of salvation presented reveals God as the center and source of salvation. This is not a man-centric book. It's a God-centric book. So with all of that said, I want to use Othniel's story to help you understand the basic outline of salvation. Not just in Judges, but in the entire Bible. Because it's important to remind one another of the basic tenets of the gospel in order that we may continue to believe them. And so that we can clearly communicate them to others. Isn't it the case that even though we know the gospel, 
We believe the gospel. We repeatedly hear the gospel week after week. That at times if someone asks us to concisely just state what is the gospel, well, we freeze a little bit. We're not exactly sure what to say. What if we only have two, three minutes with with somebody that we meet at a, a coffee shop. And we've got to try and jam-pack all that we're learning in the Bible and into a very short presentation of the gospel. Well, I hope that this outline of salvation will help solidify the major tenets of the gospel for you, not only so that you will believe them, but so that you can tell others about them. Now, as shouldn't surprise you. I'm going to take a lot more than two to three minutes to lay this out, but I will hope try to summarize it at the end. So what is the outline of salvation story in light of our text? Well, number one, we see sin. Now, the story of the world doesn't actually start with sin. It starts with God and creation. And so we do need to help people understand that we're created by God, like God, and for God. But when telling others about salvation, we need to, to soon get to why do they need salvation? And what we learn is that the reason is sin. If someone doesn't have a sense of sin, they're not going to be interested in your news about a savior. If I were to excitedly tell you, there, there's a firefighter who goes around and he's putting out fires and houses all over the place. If you don't believe your house is on fire, you don't really care about the firefighter. That might be good news for someone whose house is actually on fire, but for you, that's not really important news. So the story of Othniel begins with the acknowledgement of sin. Israel did what was evil in God's sight. But notice it doesn't just say they, they actively did something evil. The problem was also they forgot God. They were willfully neglecting him and therefore serving other gods. And this helps us understand that sin is primarily something in relation to God. It's not just evil in a vacuum. It's evil in God's sight. It matters what God says is good and bad, not what we think it is. So sin is breaking God's law. It's doing what he says don't do. And it's not doing what he says do. We he see here that sin is also a kind of idolatry. It's worshiping someone or something else above God. It often makes me chuckle to myself a little bit when the vast... Majority of Americans suggest they're not religious. Now that may be true in the sense of, well, they don't follow a formal religion like Christianity or Muslims or, or Buddhism. But Americans are very religious. And they live lives of worship. This always particularly strikes me on Super Bowl Sunday. As I drive to the evening service... I often think to myself, you know, this is actually one of the nights where most Americans are driving somewhere for worship right now. For they all gather to share food and fellowship. They're, they're all gathering to watch the same thing. And while I don't actually 
watch the halftime shows. I, I did see a picture this year of the performer raised up at a very frightening height for me on a suspended platform. And just tens of thousands of people are all staring at this person risen above them, singing along, taking pictures, screaming. If that's not worship, I don't know what worship is. So the question is never, do we worship? The question is merely, what are we worshiping? In the U.S., it's the gods of independence and self and wealth and comfort and celebrity and, and entertainment. So the Bible teaches us that everyone is born corrupted by sin. We're all born idolaters. Everyone breaks God's law. James says, if, if you've broken one point of God's law, you are now firmly in the category of law breaker. And everyone naturally forgets God and pursues something else. So remember, what does God require? Not love me a, a little bit with part of your heart and your soul and mind and strength. It's love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so even if you, you think to yourself, well, I'm not going out actively doing what, like these Israelites, doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. If someone saw how you spent your time, might they think they've forgotten the Lord? Verse 7, therefore, describes all of us as we come into this world. So it wasn't just an Israelite problem. This is a human problem. And even believers at times, we will break God's law and we'll live as if we've forgotten God. So if you wonder, what part do you play in salvation? The answer is, you supply the sin that makes it necessary. As Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So the story of salvation has to include the recognition of your sin. Not just sin, not just that they're sinners, but that you sin. You are a sinner. When I interview our covenant children as they're preparing to make a profession of faith, it's one of the questions I ask them. I ask them, if you had a friend who visited you on Sunday and they heard me preaching about sin and they just... Tugged down your shirt after the service and said, what, what sin? How would you answer that? And then I ask him, do you understand, not that there's just sin and sinners in the world, but that you're a sinner. You have sin that needs to be saved. And so I ask all of you again this evening. Are you like the Pharisee who walks into church thanking God that you're not like other men? Because you do a lot of good things. Or are you like the tax collector who beats his chest with his eyes lowered, pleading, be merciful to me, a sinner? So the first part of the outline of salvation is sin. Doesn't get much better in point two. That's wrath and judgment. I promise this will get more encouraging as time goes on. But the good news isn't good news until you get the bad news. The need for salvation is not merely that we sin, it's that we sin against a God who is good and just and he judges sinners and he condemns sin. As I said last week, sin always makes God angry and we see that again in our text. 
If he didn't have wrath towards sin, he wouldn't be God because he wouldn't be good. And if he didn't judge sin, he wouldn't be God because he wouldn't be just. So while the thought of God having wrath and judging sinners at times troubles us, there are not going to be many people who like this when you tell them that. They will object. There are moments and events that happen in our world where everybody recognizes this is actually right. God should hate and judge sin. As I mentioned this morning, preparing for the, the congregational prayer, I, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. I attended Michigan State University. Many of my friends and family are still there. So I was particularly saddened and angered by the shooting that happened. And as I read social media postings and articles about it, the feelings of anger and sadness were universal. Even non-Christians were outraged. The word evil was used repeatedly. And many declared their hope that this shooter was now in hell. There were even expressions of regret that he was not still alive to face justice. But he will face justice. Far greater justice than we can deliver. My observation, though, is that moments like these show that everyone has a sense that evil is a real thing that should be hated and condemned. In other words, everyone has a sense that God should hate sin and that hell is just. We just don't think our sin is really that bad, and so we don't think we really deserve hell. But the story of salvation includes the story of hell, that everyone is under God's wrath and judgment, for God will condemn those who remain in the guilt of their sin. You see this in our text. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, Mesopotamia is translating what literally in the Hebrew says, Aram Naharaim, which means the land of the double river. This is the area that will later be the home of the great Assyrian and Babylonian empires. So the first oppressor that we read about that the Lord raises up to punish his people is not actually one of the Canaanite peoples that was left in the land. The Lord sends a far greater and more powerful enemy from far away. He has to be powerful for his empire to now include Israel. Now, no one's sure who Cushan Rishathaim is because that's probably not his real name. This is probably just what the Israelites called him. It means Cushan of double wickedness. So in Hebrew... Where he's king and the name that he's, he's called sound very similar... And it essentially means the king of double wickedness from the land of double rivers. But we see that for eight years, his empire extends as far as Judah and he subjects the people of Israel. And he does this not because he's willingly serving God, but God has ordained that he is going to come and be an instrument, instrument of judgment. Yet, we know that this oppression that Israel faced for Eight years is nothing compared to the oppression we face from sin and the devil. And the punishment that they faced is nothing compared to the eternal punishment of hell. 
Our God is a God of wrath and judgment against evil because he is a good and just God. Therefore, your need of salvation is actually a need to be saved from God. From God's wrath against your sin. You need to be saved from that far more than you need to be saved from physical suffering. Because if you remain in the guilt of your sin, you remain a child of wrath. And you will face the eternal judgment of hell. Which is eternity in the tormenting presence of God's wrath. So sin is a problem. And what we need to be saved from is God's judgment upon it. So how can you and I possibly be saved from God? Well, here's where we start to get to the good news. The third point in the outline of salvation is sovereign grace. You're saved from God by God. So thankfully there is good news and the hope of salvation from God's sovereign wrath. You see in verse 9 that the people in their distress cry out to God for help. So you might expect me now to talk about repentance. And faith and repentance are certainly necessary. As we're sharing the gospel, we need to call them to faith and repentance. But that's actually not where I'm going here. Because what you read about in Judges is not repentance. In fact, one of the major themes of Judges is that the people lack faith and will not repent. No matter what the Lord sends their way. They mourn their suffering, but they continue to love their sin. They increase in sinful stubbornness. And so the story of Judges, you see, is Israel moving from bad to worse. So the emphasis in Judges is not man's humble repentance. There's other parts of the Bible that make clear we need humble repentance. The emphasis in Judges is God's sovereign grace. For it is God's work to accomplish our salvation. Indeed, we learned in our previous evening series that even our faith and repentance are the fruit of God's saving work in us. So I just want to take a, a moment to understand both of those words, sovereign and grace. For as you read Judges and this brief synopsis of Othniel, there's no debate in the author's mind of who's in control of these events. The Lord is the one who raises up Cush and Rishathayim. The Lord is the one who raises up Othniel. The Lord is the one who gives Othniel his spirit. The Lord is the one who gives the enemy into Othniel's hand. So we see that every person and every event are under God's sovereign control. And we are reminded that this is still true today. There's not one person or event that is outside of God's control. So as you read about Putin and Russia and the attack on Ukraine, you know that Putin is still under God's sovereign control. When you read about President Biden, who's the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth, well, President Biden is still under God's sovereign control. The shooter at MSU was under God's sovereign control. The victims were all under God's sovereign control. You and I are under God's sovereign control. I have to say, God's total sovereignty remains one of the most comforting truths in my life. 
Not because I understand everything that he does. I don't think I understand a lot of the things that he, he does. But I know who he is. I know his heart and his character. And so I trust that he knows best. And I thank him that he's in control and I'm not. I wouldn't do things his way. Which would be pretty bad for me and everybody else. We've seen God's sovereignty as we've worked through Job and Daniel and the doctrines of grace. Indeed, you can't preach or read through a book of the Bible without being confronted with God's absolute, unchanging, all-encompassing sovereignty. And this is the only reason that salvation is possible. If God was not a sovereign God, well, then his redemptive purposes could be stopped. But because he is a sovereign God, they can't be stopped. He is in control of history. And even unwilling servants like the king of Mesopotamia, those who don't desire to serve God, must still serve God. Even sin and the devil must serve God as they rebel against God. They must fulfill his ordained will. So when you read about wars and shootings... When you read about earthquakes in Turkey, in Syria, or any other number of evils and tragedies, you must remember that God has not lost control. Everything is still serving his purpose, and that purpose includes the salvation of his people. And so we not only see God's sovereignty, we see his grace. For as I said, the Israelites don't actually repent. The word for cried out just means calling out for help out of a sense of deep distress because you're facing an unbearable circumstance. The only time the word ever refers to repentance is if there's another clause or verb added to make that clear. So what we see here again is that God's deliverance is pure grace. The Israelites didn't seek God. They just wanted comfort and relief. Because apart from God's grace, nobody seeks God. Paul says, no, not one. Throughout Judges, then, as you read of God's deliverance again and again, you should be overwhelmed with just how gracious God is. Salvation is the work of God's sovereign grace from beginning to end. This is not your doing, as Paul tells the Ephesians. So Israelite is saved for no other reason than God graciously raises up a deliverer to save them. God provides the deliverer, and as we'll see a little bit later, God empowers him and gives him the victory. But I want you to also notice in this text that, that even the suffering and the distress that the Israelites face falls under the category of sovereign grace. For what caused Israel to cry out and at least pause in their idolatry in the first place. What made them think about God again? Because it says they, they forgot him and were serving other gods. So what caused them even in an imperfect way to start talking to God again? Well, it was their distress. It was their suffering. The good news is that God in his steadfast love relentlessly pursues his people, even as they wander away in sin. But sometimes that pursuit of steadfast love takes the form of suffering. So suffering can serve many purposes. 
It serves, as we learned last week, as part of the curse and consequence of sin. But it also can serve to wake up complacent sinners and call God back to mind when you have totally forgotten about him. You see, pain can be preservative. When you place your hand on a hot stove, it's the pain that says, move your hand or lose your hand. Without the pain, your hand is just going to burn. So in this way, the pain of suffering can continually redirect us to God and away from our sinful idolatry. It can be God's way of grabbing our attention and saving us from greater danger. Therefore, though suffering is painful, it is always purposeful. We also see it is limited to fulfill that purpose. It cannot exceed the boundaries of the purpose for which it has been ordained. And God ordains suffering in the lives of his people to save them, not destroy them. So you see that Cush and Rishathaim could only reign over Israel for eight years. Not nine. Eight. There was a limit. And we remember that God always limits our suffering as well. It's for a time. Not forever. And once it has served God's purpose, he will provide relief. So we must understand that facing God's ordained suffering is not the most frightening reality we could face. The reality of Romans 1 is the most frightening reality we could face. Where God just gives us up to our sinful desires and says, fine, go your own way. And your own way will be eternal judgment. By raising up this wicked king, God called it, caused Israel's distress, which is what caused them to cry out. If you don't feel your need for help, you won't ask for help. So suffering, Christian, in your life is not the loss of God's steadfast love. It may very well be the evidence of God's steadfast love. That he has not forsaken you even when you forget him. At times, it happened just a couple of weeks ago. I met with a young man, not a believer, talked in a co coffee shop, and he was just telling me how lost and hopeless he feels in life. So I was able to just lay out the gospel for him, and I told him, the fact that you feel so lost and miserable, that's a really good sign. It means the Lord's not just letting you go. He's trying to draw you in. Suffering ought to make us more sensitively aware of God. For it reminds us there, there is something really wrong in this world. There's something really wrong in our own hearts. And so it forces us to lift our gaze and our affection to something above this world. Salvation is the result of God's sovereign grace. And that sovereign grace even encompasses your suffering and misery. So when you suffer, don't ignore or suppress the pain, but follow it back to God who is calling you to himself. It may very well be the trail of his steadfast love, not his wrathful judgment. So we see sin, we see wrath and judgment, we see sovereign grace. Fourth, in the outline of salvation, we find a spirit-empowered savior. Another common thread throughout these narratives is the fact that God's 
deliverers are able to deliver because they are empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So it is not they who save, but God saves through them. In his sovereign grace, God raises up Othniel. And as you read the name Othniel, now the, the reason for some of those seemingly random details and stories in chapter 1 make a little more sense. Why did the author take time in chapter 1 to talk about Caleb and his daughter who marries Caleb's younger brother Othniel? Just kind of feels like a random story in chapter 1. But it provides some context for where Othniel comes from. What he was like. Othniel is presented in a very positive light. He's what a leader should be. He takes part in the holy war. God gives him success in taking the land. He goes about his business of settling the land. He gets married and he builds his household. He's an exemplary guy. He's also not a native Israelite. Do you remember the brief detail in chapter 1, verse 16? It says some of the Kenites, who were part of the, the family of Moses' father-in-law, came with the Israelites into Canaan and settled in Judah. Well, why are we told about that? Well, because Othniel is a Kenite. Othniel is Caleb's younger brother. Caleb and Othniel are not native Israelites. They are both descendants of Kenez, which is where the name Kenite or Kenizzite comes. In Numbers 32.12, it says Caleb is the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, which means Othniel is too. So yet again, like with the story of Rahab and Ruth, we find foreigners who become Israelites as they embrace the God of Israel and actually become essential to the story of salvation. The Kenites were basically adopted by the tribe of Judah. So Othniel represents Judah, which was the tribe commanded in chapter 1 to take the lead in war. So it's not surprising that the first deliverer we find comes from Judah. And unlike many of the other deliverers, there's nothing negative said about Othniel. This is probably also to show the, the moral degradation over time of the people. Because the judges were the representatives, the embodiments, the embodiment of the people. And so even the stories of the judges kind of get worse over time. You start with Othniel and Ehud, but then you end up with Jephthah and Samson, who are morally questionable at best. These are not guys you would hold up and say, ah, I want to be like him. But the reason that Othniel is successful is not because he's just an overall good guy. It's because God gives him sp his spirit and then gives him victory. Othniel is the instrument of salvation. God is the Savior. So what judges will keep hinting at for us is that the Savior we need is a spirit-empowered Savior. For as God says to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, as he raises up Zerubbabel to be the leader of God's people, he says, you will do this not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. For we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior who is filled with God's Holy Spirit. Because God's Holy Spirit is the only power for salvation that can overcome our enemies of sin, Satan, and the world. Kushan Rishathaim was, was more of an emperor than a local king. It's most likely one of the most powerful enemies that Israel faced in the book of Judges. And yet you see here, he's nothing 
in the face of a spirit-empowered deliverer. We need a spirit-empowered deliverer. Fifth and finally, we see in the outline of salvation, rest. I'm just going to mention this one rather briefly because we need to be careful not to over-spiritualize the phrase, the land had rest for 40 years. Notice it's the land that has rest, not the people. The people are still living in sinful rebellion, but at least the land is spared for a time of war and tyranny. Still, we see, as we've been learning in Hebrews, that the goal of salvation is rest. Not just earthly rest, but heavenly rest with God. This doesn't describe sleep, but peace. However, what we see in Judges is that the rest is always temporary, not eternal. The deliverer always dies, as we read. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So to have eternal rest, we need an eternal Savior. Othniel was not that savior. He was a type of the one we need. And yet his very name reminds us that God would send his promised eternal deliverer at just the right time. Because Othniel means the time of God. Perhaps this is the hardest aspect of living by faith and not by sight. For even when we understand that That sin and suffering are for a limited time and we cry out to the Lord and wait upon his deliverance. The truth is we we don't know how long we're going to have to wait. We have to trust therefore not only that God will do what is right, but he will do it at the right time. He will work his salvation according to his will in his time. He will give and relieve suffering in his time frame not ours. The true salvation of Israel had already been promised thousands of years before Othniel came. And it wouldn't come for another thousand years. But it did come. For we read in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, when the time of God was just right, God sent his son to be our savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Savior received the Holy Spirit as no one else had before. For Jesus received the full measure of the Spirit. He is the servant in Isaiah 61 who says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And this Savior, unlike Othniel, secured an eternal redemption as he offered himself on the cross through the eternal Spirit. And as he was raised from the dead by the same Spirit, defeating all of our spiritual oppressors and saving us from God's wrath 
and judgment. We therefore do not have temporary rest. We have eternal rest. Because he lives forever as we have heard in Hebrews. He is able to save you to the uttermost. And as Galatians 4 says. He gives that same spirit to you and to me. The spirit who cries in our hearts. Abba, Father, so that we are able to cry out for help in time of need. For salvation means we are no longer a slave, but a son. So the pattern of salvation set forth in Othniel's story is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's story. For the outline of salvation is that you are a sinner who is condemned under God's wrath and judgment. But because of God's sovereign grace, you may be freed from sin through faith in the Spirit-empowered Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose for you, so that you might enter into his eternal rest. If you have one or two minutes with an unbeliever, tell them that. There's sin, there's judgment. But there is grace and a spirit-empowered Savior who can lead us into eternal rest. His name is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that once again we would believe that gospel truth. Lord, we don't know throughout this week who we might have a chance to, to share that news with. Maybe it's Somebody at, at work or in our neighborhood or in our, our family or just somebody we meet at a coffee shop or a library. And I just pray that if that moment comes, you would help us recall some of what we've learned tonight. We would be able to tell them about sin, a savior, and an eternal salvation. So give us boldness, give us clarity of thought and word. That this good news may continue to go forth throughout Kalamazoo. That others might be freed from sin. And live in the eternal rest that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.